Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 63. It is January 23rd, 2020. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we'll discuss Marcelo Zuna's one-year deal with the Braves, the rise of Fernando Tatis Jr. to first-round status, and several other topics, including questions about how to handle a half-season splits. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying the show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take the time to do that. We really appreciate it. Tell your friends about the show as well. And if you're listening to the show for the first time and you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You know, we're going to get right at it. Marcelo Zuna goes to the Braves, and I think one of us or both of us thought that it wasn't going to happen. We thought they were going to maybe go the third base upgrade route, but one-year deal, $18 million, it kind of looks like Ozuna is doing the Osmani Grandal bet-on-himself thing, and I think he has the skills to actually pull it off. Yeah, we'll see. This is going to definitely be the best or uh, most hitter-friendly home park that he's played in. Um, and it's not saying that he's going to Coors or anything, but Atlanta is, is like about 18th. Uh, when it comes to um, high drives to right field, turning into uh, left field. He's a righty. Left field turning into home runs. And uh, uh, before, he used to be at sort of 28 and 29 and 30. So there's a chance there that he kind of pulls a Mike Moustakis, I think, and has a good year and a good park, and then gets the basically the three-year, at least the three-year deals he was looking at, if not more, plus the 18 he gets, you know? So if he's looking at 330, 345, that sort of stuff, maybe he says, I take 18, and I get that same deal or better next year. Yeah, maybe he pushes it up to 18 per year over three more years, and that's not on the table right now. I could see that playing out that way. It is funny that all the parks he's played in are more pitcher friendly and this is the least pitcher friendly environment so far but still kind of closer to the middle of the pack and he's had a ton of success on, on the power front i mean last year was a low point for him in terms of batting average at 243 but he drew more walks than ever which i think is a really encouraging sign for the long-term profile he's one of those guys with big time power who's never really struck out that much as a big league player outside of his first full season way back in 2014 even 26.8 percent by today's standards really isn't that bad but uh, I like him quite a bit, and he's right in the same average draft position neighborhood as Josh Donaldson, who was a big topic on our Tuesday episode. That seemed a little bit low to me. I think we're going to see a similar lift on, on Ozuno, where he's probably going 15, 20 picks earlier, maybe even 25 picks earlier as draft season continues to play out, because I think the general feeling and assessment with the Braves lineup is that it's a really good lineup for him to land in, so those counting stats could look Maybe as good as they were in that 2017 peak where he went over 200 combined runs in RBIs. I think he's capable of doing that again. And I think the batting average comes in close to where all those projections are putting him in that 271 to 276 range between ATC and Steamer. Yeah, the thing that I think that turfed him might have been, there's two things that come up. Uh, his defensive numbers look okay when it comes to DRS and UZR and stuff, but uh, OOAA, the OAA, I always mess it up. Outs above average. OAA. Uh, that one is says he's a minus eight, one of the worst outfielders out there. And I think that matches up with kind of the eye test. If you've watched him, uh, there's, a, there's a really funny clip uh, that went around the internet of him uh, scaling the wall for a ball that 
hit like six feet in front of the wall. <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of the GIF highlights of 2019. Yeah, so um, you know, I like um, I like him. I like the bat. I like what he does for that lineup. The problem still is the bottom of the lineup. You know, they extended the lineup one more batter, but you know, when it comes to sort of Riley, Inciarte, Marquecas, uh, uh, you know that that portion of the lineup, uh, it's an NL lineup, I guess I'll say. Yeah, I think it's a, a good NL lineup though, and Azuna uh, gives them one really dangerous bat, takes the playing time down a little bit, probably for Nick Marquecas, puts him into a more traditional fourth outfielder role because. I think Ender Inciarte is sneakily one of those guys that's going to play a lot and actually offer cheap speed. We're going to talk a lot about speed as we move through this episode, and, and he's on that short list of guys that you get outside the top 200 who I think can secure enough playing time and not burn you. He can actually be an asset in some other categories as well if things fall the right way. Uh, but the big topic on my mind this week is Fernando Tatis Jr., who has become a first-rounder in recent weeks. And I heard Paul Spohr and Dusty Wagner talking about this on the Sleeper in the Bus podcast earlier in the week. They were kind of predicting players who would be first-rounders or would be up significantly in ADP between now and March. And Tatis was among the players they discussed. And then sure enough, yesterday, a 15-team slow draft demand starts up. Jeff Erickson in the seat next to me pops Tatis at 12 overall. I've been lower than the field on Tatis for all of draft season. Part of it's the injury concern with his back, although he seems to be fully on track for a normal start to spring training, and everything seems to be fine on that front right now. There is a lot of swing and miss in his profile. I think it gets better over time because he's so young. There's reason to believe it can improve. And then I just look at the, I look at the stolen bases, and I wonder if we're kind of wish casting a higher ceiling in that category. The projection systems love him, and it's really hard to project young players. It's something we've talked about a lot on this show. But ATC is right up there with Steamer in terms of how much it, again, likes Tatis. 274 for the average, 29 homers, 24 steals. Steamer had 265, 31 homers, 23 steals. But I mean, you're splitting hairs in terms of the, the power and speed in the differences between those two systems. Where are you at on Tatis? Like, I understand the appeal. He's tooled up. He's young. He could be on a trajectory not totally unlike what Ronald Acuna Jr. just did last year. But I just don't think I want to pay that price, a late first-round pick, to find out. Yeah. I mean, I think this uh, hangs on an old-school stat that we used to talk about all the time that we kind of talk about a little bit less these days, which is BABIP. You know, and a batting average on balls in play 1.0, the analysis was, you know, that uh, all balls in play across baseball trend towards 300. And basically every year, the league batting average on balls in play is 300. So 30% of balls in play turned into hits. And that's been true even when, as balls in play have gone down. And it's it fluctuates a little bit, but it's like 295, 294, 301. You know, that's basically, it's always right in there. And so when you look at Tatis last year and you say, wow, he had a 410 BABIP, you know, that's, that's you know, the people who've had a full season with a 400 BABIP, there's like three of them and Babe Ruth is one of them, you know? Um, so 
you're kind of like, oh, well, that's probably not going to happen. And plus, plus, it was 372 plate appearances. So, that, you know, probably is not, um, you know, even a full season uh, uh, for Tatis last year. Um, you know, but then, you, so now you go towards projecting it. And now, you know, Babbitt 2.0 and 3.0 is uh, how hard does he hit the ball? How fast does he, what angles does he hit the ball? Can we kind of predict Babbitt as much as we can through the component stats uh, and get to a point? So ATC is really interesting because ATC is a, a consolidator. Uh, basically, it kind of looks at a lot of uh, projection systems and weights them based on certain things that come uh, certain things that have been proven to work for each uh, projection system. It's almost like a, uh, uh, an aggregator, you know what I mean? Like a, like a, like a projection system aggregator. Um, so, you know, I can't speak to why exactly it says, uh, you know, there's going to be 346 BABIP unless uh, Ariel has done some stuff on the hood, maybe with some StatCast stuff. Um, Steamer is probably closer to where I would project him BABIP-wise. A 326 BABIP is pretty good. Last year, uh, you know, a 326 BABIP would have been in the top 50, and people like him uh, would have been Jorge Polanco, Austin Meadows, Chris Bryant, Ozzy Albies, you know, good players that hit the ball pretty hard and and, and uh, had pretty good batting averages. Uh, but of course, then you add in the, the, the strikeout rate, and he's probably going to have a worse batting average than all those guys. ATC says he's going to have a 346 BABIP, uh, which would be top 15 in the league, and right there with Javier Baez, uh, Domingo Santana, Trey Turner, uh, which you can see. I mean, if you're, if you're kind of just using your eye test, you say, okay, this guy's fast, and he hits the ball hard, and he, and he, and he runs, and you know, like the, he could have that sort of a BABIP. So possible, but... If you kind of zoom out to three years and and look at, at Babbitt, you don't really get that many. 346 suddenly becomes a top six or seven type Babbitt, you know? And now he's up there with J.D. Martinez and Christian Yelich, right? So, you know, yes, Javier Baez, 346 Babbitt over the last three years. Tatis shares a lot of things with Javier Baez. Love that. But when I poke under the hood, there's also these weird things that Tatis does where I think he's unrefined as a hitter. And I could see him not having necessarily the year that everyone's sort of buying the upside on. Because, you know, I looked at his exit velocity on fly balls minus his exit velocity on ground balls. And he has a top 15 number there. So he hits high fly balls really hard and ground balls really soft. And that's led to a good BABIP because if you hit your ground balls really soft, you have a chance to outrun the, the, the fielder. If you hit your fly balls really hard, uh, they're going to turn into hits and power. So in some ways, that's good. But is that like a skill that you believe in? Do you think that a hitter can say, oh, this is a fly ball. I'm going to hit it hard. Oh, this is a ground ball. I'm going to hit it soft, you know? Um, and, the, and the players around him, I think, represent the sort of uh, the 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 boom or bust situation that can happen with a player like this. So Joey Gallo is number one in the difference between the two. Great. He's a really hard hitter. Victor Robles is number two. Ryan Cordell, Delino, Delino De Shields, Will Myers, Luke Maye, Robinson Chirinos, Harrison Bader, uh, Carlos Gomez. Oh, Juan Soto. Good. Matt Carpenter. Okay. Michael Conforto. Okay. Tatis. So it's a really weird mix of groups of hitters, and there's a fair amount of like poor hitters in there, and 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 mistake hitters. Um, so what I'm saying, long story short, that was uh, that was a bit of a soapbox moment. 
Uh, but what I'm saying is there there are refinements that need to happen in Tatis's game. He's, you know, I can just zoom out and say he's 21 years old. Uh, to put him in Javier Baez's shoes right away, I think, is uh, buying his upside and not uh, his most likely outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the, the XBA from last year, 259. He actually hit 317. He's the kind of guy that's going to beat his XBA because he runs so well. Like, I can I can. But they're, they're that. including that now. They're including that now. I mean, foot speed is more in it now. I, yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily an XBA, but I know it's an XWOBA. So I would assume it's an XBA. Yeah, so the, you look at the difference between XWOBA and WOBA. That's a 53-point difference where his actual WOBA was a lot higher than his expected WOBA. So there was... I, there was a ton of good fortune, and what can happen is he can improve, he can lower the K rate, he can add more power, like he could do the things that offset what would be like a normal sort of regression. That can happen. Skills can change, and you know it it just it masks it, right? That can happen. I understand that. I think what I, I came back to were two things where I think there are other players that go in that range that have much higher floors, many of whom are not going to steal many, if any, bases. So part of this might just be the obsession we're having with stolen bases as well. Now, a lot of the drafts that are happening right now, they are high-stakes leagues. They are NFBC-type leagues where there's an overall prize component, and you want to do that that big thing, that, that find that league-winning player that goes off and, and carries you to a title. Again, I think the, the hope for people who are taking him at the back of the first round is that he is this year's Acuna. He's a guy that's going 1-1 in some rooms or at least top three in some rooms next season. I think he has the tools to eventually be that player, but it doesn't always happen overnight. So I I ran a leaderboard real quick over at Fangraphs, and I I ran through the last 20 seasons. I split up all the rookie seasons, sorted by WRC+, set the minimum to 300 plate appearances. And what Tatis did last year in terms of WRC+, you know, 150 WRC+. That's the ninth highest for any rookie with at least 300 plate appearances in the last 20 years. It's a great rookie season. The guys ahead of him, short list, right? Jordan Alvarez, number one, Aaron Judge, Jose Abreu, Mike Trout, Yasiel Puig, Albert Pujols, Ryan Braun, Shohei Otani. It's a really good list of players. Only Judge struck out more than Tatis, and no one, no one had a BABIP over 400. The next highest BABIP on that list was 383. That was Trout. So you just start to kind of put it together and say, okay, yeah, this this guy is in good company, but limitless tools and and best player in baseball upside that was something that people were saying about Yasiel Puig after his debut like there's a good example of a place where it went a little bit wrong even though it wasn't a total disaster for those first couple of seasons after that rookie campaign it it just it doesn't always happen where it's all good all progress going forward year after year upon debut it's true it's true um I mean I I've watched the kid play and I'm actually not as worried about the injury component necessarily. From what I've read, that injury is basically uh, more common these days because people specialize earlier and so they're doing repetitive stress injuries. It's like a repetitive stress specialization injury where you're like, I play baseball year round and I'm 18 and still growing, you know? Um, So I, I think... I think it's a thing that he got right. You know, it is a little bit concerning that he then added like, you know, a hamstring injury on top of that. Um, right? Yeah, and he had a bad thumb injury in the minors in 2018. I think he 
tore up his thumb sliding into second base while stealing a base. Yeah, to some That's extent, bad luck though. To some extent, there might be a little bit of like the high flyer syndrome, where like he he does crazy things, and sometimes those lead to injury. But uh, I'm not ready to put an injury prone tag on him. I do think he's really exciting. He had, uh, but you know, it's funny that sometimes we overrate his tools. Uh, let me do a real. You know, people talk about how fast he is, uh, and he is fast. Uh, but I remember looking at his sprint speed and being like, "Oh, he's not." He's not like the fastest in the league. Yeah, he's 95th percentile, so he's he's up there, but he's not like 33rd. And it's funny, look who's as fast as him. Ryan Cordell. Now that is weird. <laughs> what just happened? Uh anyway. Are funny like that, aren't they? Like just <laughs> when you when you when you put him in isolation and you see things like that, you're like, hmm. Yeah, like Randy Arazoreno is not supposed to be a center fielder, and he's the 28th fastest guy in the big leagues. Well, you know, I know that. Don't yell through your your computer at me. I know, <laughs> I know that just being fast is not all it takes to be a center fielder. But anyway, uh, so anyway, he's fast. Uh, he hits the ball hard. Uh, you know, I'm doing a piece for Friday uh, about barrels. Uh, he's not in it, but his 13.3 percent barrel rate. Uh, or 8% barrel, uh, 13% per batted ball event, 8% per PA is almost double the league wide rate. Uh, so he's, he hits the ball hard. He hits the ball hard in the air. Uh, he's fast, but there are problems in his game. And, you know, maybe he gets rid of those because the tools are so great. And someone like Javier Baez kind of blew through all these questions too. Uh, but there are other players that didn't quite figure out the uh, the plate discipline component, right? And if you don't quite figure out the plate discipline component, you know, uh, I just feel like um, you can be fi- you can be figured out, you know. And if you if you told me that like he would have an eight percent walk rate and a thirty percent strikeout rate the rest of his career, I would say at best case scenario he's gonna he's gonna burn bright for five or six years and then then he's gonna he's gonna fall off. Uh, not everyone ends up uh, having the same career as Javier Baez. Not everyone that looks like Javier Baez ends up having a career like Javier Baez. But obviously, uh, another Javier Baez with maybe even a little bit more speed is super exciting. And if I was in a dynasty league, he's probably uh, a top 10 type player in a dynasty league. Uh, But uh, when it comes to this year and what's going to happen this year uh, for a 21-year-old who struck out 30% of the time last year and hit his ground balls like 80 miles an hour, like... I don't know. There's a there's a little bit of uh, of uh, I I'm going to take the steamer batting average 265, and you know I might give him 28 homers and 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 20 steals, uh, which is is going to make him um, you know a different kind of value. I don't probably not a first rounder. If you look at steamer for like Byron Buxton. 262, 20 homers, 23 steals. It's not that far off the numbers you just put out there for Tatis. And I think Buxton actually represents the the like the the Buxton is the what could happen too. So there's Javier Baez could happen or Buxton could happen, you know? And they're both very recent examples that show you what, you know, poor plate discipline but great tools uh how they can figure how they can turn out, you know? Um Steamer says uh, with a 265 average and uh, 30 homers and 23 stolen bases that um, Tatis is basically the same as Javier Baez. Wow, amazing. 
Um, and uh, they're both $18, $19 players, uh, which would make them uh, basically 30, top 30 players. So the interesting... Top 30 hitters. Yeah. Top 30 hitters. Again, again like I, I think Tatis is a really good player. I just don't like him enough compared to most of everybody else in the room it seems that's all i'm saying is like well i i'm, I'm gonna miss out on this guy i don't feel compelled to push him up even higher because I, i'm not so confident that it all comes together for him right now that i have to have him in the back part of round one uh, but i think you can take shots like that i think you can even do it in the early rounds but if you're going to try and take a, a chance on a, a growth stock a player that still could be a lot better in in 2020 and beyond you could do that in the fourth round. You could push Victor Robles up from an ADP around 70 and take him at 55 if you really want to. He's not going to be back there in a snake, right? If you're if you're at the 3-4 turn, so end of three, beginning of four, like that pick 40 to 50 range, coming back through in the fourth round, that's your shot at Robles. He's probably not going to be there in the late part of round five. And if you look at Robles' projection versus Tatis, it stacks up pretty favorably it's a power speed combo a young guy that could get a lot better i mean if you're going to take that shot would you rather take that shot at the end of round one or in the early part of round four yeah i mean with steamer robles is a ten dollar player um but I, I i get your general point and, and there's other players that fit the same place so right right this is this you could apply this to luis robert or whoever and if you want you want and if you want to change the the math so it favors you better, so do you want to take that shot in the first? Do you want to take that shot in the seventh with Jonathan VR, right? Or um, you know, do you want to take it later with D Gordon? Or you know, one of my favorites actually is Bo Bichette. Uh, I feel I, I don't know what the industry hype is on him, uh, but Bo Bichette is a fifteen dollar player that I think will go around fifteen dollar players. And so there's a player that's going to steal some bases that's, you know, uh, projected by Steamer to have uh, the same value in stolen bases, uh, not necessarily in the rest of it, but in stolen bases alone. Um, and he's probably going to go around where his projection is. So uh, now you're talking about a guy who's going to go in the top 50 batters. So you're talking about maybe top 80, top 100 type pick, right? Mm-hmm. Love that. Like I, lo- I, I And I think... There's questions about Bobichet, but they're similar to Fernando Tatis. Like, does he have a lot of pull power, or is he just like a spray guy? You know, uh, there's some questions there. Um, but Bobichet makes contact; has a better contact rate. Uh, you know, he's um, uh, he's got power and speed, uh, and he's projected to be like a 2020 type guy. And you can get him many, many rounds later. Right, better hit tool, pretty yeah. clearly. A 2020 projection based on yeah. what Steamer has out there, 22-18 in the ATC system, 270s in the batting average department, 75 and 77 to be exact. I mean, you can kind of go through those early rounds and find your upside guy. Like, I just think this, I, I don't think upside is reason enough to draft a player in the first round. Like, I, I, I like being aggressive. I like trying to do things that are outside the box, and yet I still am finding myself uh, odd man out with Tatis and think about why Trout is is always a first rounder. You know, Trout is always a first rounder because he um, because of his floor. 
He's not necessarily a first-rounder because of his ceiling, because he's getting older, and his ceiling's not the same as it was, and we've probably already seen his ceiling, right? But he's still a first, and he's not even the first, the best uh, fantasy baseball player when we sum it all up at the end. But when you sum up every year, he's the best, you know? And, you know, you're either, you are you know that you're buying somewhere, someone who's going to be like a top 10 batter, right? So there's always risk, but with him, there's less risk. And that's why you buy him in the first round. And so I think the first round is where you take less risk. You take a high floor. You take a high floor with the high ceiling, but you need the high floor part. Because there's a lot of high ceiling guys that you can take you know, later on, we're, we're all, we're all trying to find the sleepers, you know, Oscar Mercado could do something crazy next year. He could, he could, he could join. He has certain amount of skills. I don't think he's necessarily going to do it, but like with the steals and the power, like if he hit 25 homers next year and sold 30 bases or something like we'd all of a sudden be like, Whoa, Oscar Mercado first rounder. But you know, there's, there's play people with the upside Robert, I'm going to call him Robert because somebody from somebody from Cuba told me that it's Robert. I'm sorry. I'm going to go with Robert. It, it just makes more sense to it me. It should be Robert. I just I hey, I just do what the PA people do. That's right. They 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 know more than me. I'll I'll call him Luis. Uh, anyway, no, <laughs> like there's only one Luis in baseball. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's there's upside later on. You're buying you're buying floor in the first round to some extent. Uh, and uh, I don't think Tatis's floor belongs in the first round. And that's why, for me, it's like a no-brainer to take Nolan Arenado over Tatis in the back I mean, of round one. What is Nolan Arenado's floor? It's like 290-35. Yeah, he's hit 37 or more home runs in five straight seasons. He's driven in at least 110 runs in each of those five seasons, and he scored at least 97 runs. The lowest his batting average has been in the last five years is 287. The only thing that's causing him to fall and pushing Tatis up, I think, is that Arenado doesn't trade run, rumors. Tatis doesn't, or Tatis does, and then, yeah, the trade rumors. But are we going to sit here and assume, and we talked about this a little bit on Tuesday, we're going to assume that Nolan Arenado going into a different park is going to just fall apart? Like, he, he's so stable in terms of his skills, and it's not just the park. The park is what bumps him up from being a perennial mid-second rounder to a mid-to-late first rounder. So even if he does get traded, if you're getting him in the late part of round one, you're not going to lose that much value. There's so much more downside with a player like Tatis in that spot. I'm glad you mentioned Jonathan VR uh, kind of in passing there just a minute ago. He's part of that speed obsession we're seeing in early drafts. His ADP is 34.5. In a 15-team league, that means he's an early third-round pick. And there's going to be some situations maybe where someone squeezes him into the second round because they're worried, or maybe because they went with Arenado or someone who doesn't run much in the first, and they want to make sure they lock in those bags. But VR is the guy that was still sitting there when my fourth-round pick just came up in the slow draft. I took Victor Robles instead. ADP, whatever, like throw it out the window in this case. I'm looking at these two guys and thinking, I think the floor is actually similar for what they are as hitters right now. And there is a scenario in which Jonathan VR falls into like a super utility role and doesn't hit the high end stolen base expectations we have. I think there's still people dreaming on the crazy 62 steal season he had in 2016. I know he just had 40 last year with the Orioles, but he played in every single game, you know. He had 714, 714. Play, yeah, yeah, 714 plate appearances. And that doesn't happen year to year. Doesn't happen year to year and even just And especially with him, he it, had he had 900 the combined two seasons before. AL to NL too. I mean, it's just Oh okay. yeah, more more ways to take a player out of the game. Right. Like I 
I think Jonathan VR is a good player, but I I don't feel like I have to chase speed quite as much as everybody else is. I will find speed in the early middle rounds before you get to the tremendous downside type players. We've talked about, I feel bad for Malik Smith. He's always our example of the guy you don't want to rely on. (laughs) There are other players. How about D Gordon? D Gordon is actually projected for a negative fantasy value. Right. Yeah. You don't want to be in a situation where he's your primary source of steals. Even Colton Wong. I mean, he's 24 steals last year. You don't want to rely on him as your main source of steals. There's enough ways it can go wrong. I, I understand that, but you want to look for, the Ahmed Rosarios, even the Elvis Andrews type players where you're getting that high volume of playing time and the skills are stable enough, especially in the case of Andrews, you're just not really that worried about it. With Malik Smith, there's batting average downside, there's playing time downside, there's run score downside. He could be a negative in every category except for steals and also underperform the steals that you desperately need. So I understand why you need to get the steals early. I just think people are getting them earlier than necessary, and it's hurting them in the sense of missing out on safer, high-floor elite players. Okay, so here's $3 in value, plus $3 in value in stolen base, uh, and a dollar or more overall fantasy value. All right, this is a list of attainable players that have... Uh, but less than less than uh, ten dollars. So these are attainable guys that you could get late round for uh, for for steals. Oscar Mercado, seven dollars overall value. You know, almost six dollars stolen base value. Elvis Andrews, eight dollars. Ahmed Rosario, six dollars. Uh, Danny Santana, five dollars. However, I have to put a big asterisk on Danny Santana. Just wrote a piece about what w- war is good for when it comes to fantasy and. He's got a really bad war projection. Uh, I mean, it's gotten a little better, I think, since they put him in center field, but it's weird to me. Uh, they were playing, He was playing first base last year. He, he, I don't think he's their center fielder, um, and I think that he has a really low ceiling, a really low floor, like not playing low floor. I mean, just look at his career. So he's not my favorite, but some guys I do like, like Kevin Newman, not super exciting, worth only a dollar, don't buy at last year's level, but you know, in some leagues, he's not uh, like you know. I tried to sell him in this in 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 Devil's Rejects. Um, I did eventually sell him for Lorenzo Cain, um, and that's that's a thirty three year old outfielder, um, which does not have much trade value. Otherwise, I was I had a best offer was a second round pick. So. Uh, that's where I think Kevin Newman's real life value is because he debuted at like 26 and that means he's already at his ceiling. Uh, but in a lot of redraft leagues, he's going to be a nobody to most people and you could take him late and get sort of like a 15, 20 type, uh, middle infielder. Um, Nick Senzel, I think is one I really like actually. Um, and, and Colton Wong is, is a secret, uh, person on this list. So there are players that, and and like other than Danny Santana, most of these players are going to play all year, right? So they have decent floors, and maybe they don't have the same ceiling as obviously don't have the same ceiling as Tatis. But um, if you're if you're if you just want twenty stolen bases, those guys will do it for you. Yeah, and if you get a few of those guys, you don't necessarily have to chase someone who could get you thirty five or forty if everything goes right. I I just. 
I think you want to make sure you've really gone through the process of figuring out where you can get steals if you want to go ahead and take advantage of what looks like a, a falling early ADP on a Nolan Arenado and, and players like him, the year-over-year, year, the, the metronomes, as you, you called them when we were talking about Anthony yeah. Rendon. You want guys like that. They are the safest players in the pool, and you can find your speed elsewhere. Uh, we do have a, a good mailbag question I wanted to throw at you. This comes from Mike, and he wants to know what we expect from you, Darvish and Jack Flaherty this year. Uh, he's in an NL-only roto auction, and he's been burned by creating a dependency on pitchers based on a half-year performance. He cited Zach Wheeler from 2018, mm-hmm. I think, as an example. I mean, Darvish is second half last year from June on when he stopped walking dudes. That was pretty weird, right? So how do you handle pitchers and any player, really, that get into this new level over a half season? Like, is it noise? Do you have to look under the hood and see what kinds of changes may have been made to enable that to happen? Like, what do you do? Is this just the nature of pitching where it's just variance in some cases? I think uh, I think Trevor Bauer is a good a good person to talk about here. So, Trevor Bauer had the amazing year in 2017, 18? 18. 18. He had the amazing year in 2018 and uh, and then he sort of regressed to mostly his league norms last year where he, you know, he gave up his 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 career norms where he gave up more homers and 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 walked more people and had like a mid 4 ZRA. Um, and you know, there's people out there saying like he was unusable. I'm not going to have any shares. Um, and um, Alex Chamberlain's out there making a good point, which is that his expected stats, his ex woba and stuff uh, in 2018 were great, uh, but they were out of line with his career. Um, and then the next year, the expected stats were more in line with his career. So that's why you kind of talk about. Um, having earned something like he earned that 2018, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. That's the same. That's the same. That's the concept we're trying to get at. Right. And, uh, and Chamberlain said, uh, you know, when someone asked him like, well, how do you, how do you tell the difference? Like, how do you tell the difference of if it was earned and sustainable or just earned and unsustainable? And he gave the answer, which I think is why pitching is, um, where it's worth listening to humans, uh, projections are bad, um, trying to find these, this earned and sustainable uh, type player is, um, is, uh, is difficult. And the answer that Chamberlain gave was you have to look at changes in uh, pitch mix, mechanics, velocity, uh, that sort of deal. You have to look for uh, an, exp- explana- an explanation that makes sense. Well, the thing with that I might disagree with other people on is that Bauer did have something new um, in 2018, which is a, a new slider that he built. And, uh, you know, I knew, I know he threw something called a slider in 2015, uh, but in 2018, the slider had a different shape um, and uh, he used it a lot and it used it to great success. So what happened then in 2019? My answer is a little bit different than others. He was injured. Um, there was uh, a back injury uh, and uh, and a hamstring that he was dealing with all year. Now, it's not obvious because he pitched 213 innings uh, and did his best, but I think that sort of thing can affect command. Now, I look at next year, and I've got a command number for him that's in the top 40. Uh, no, not, not a command number, a stuff number for Bauer that puts him in the top 40. And a command number that puts him basically with Hugh Darvish and Chris Archer. So below average. 
Um, but if you could have a younger you Darvish, you'd be really into it. And I think command is really where things go in and out. Um, you know, you, you know, just you Darvish himself, he found a, like an, a, a slightly different release point. And that really uh, brought all of his pitches together. Slightly different release point, slightly different pitch mix. And that was it. Um, do I think these things are sustainable? Um, I mean, you can be a projections person uh, and, and just 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 hang on to those and just say, you know, add it all up, see, you know, see see what he's done and see what he you know he could do, and 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 this is the projection. Um, but uh, I guess I'm rambling, dude. It's just it's <laughs> it's not easy. Uh, but if you have an explanation and you believe in the explanation, then go for it. I think when I look at Darvish, this is how I see it. You know, him getting the control to that elite, elite level, like that's great. I don't think that holds up over a full season. I don't. I don't think so either. But I think the fact that he got back to full season levels that were in line with his pre-2018 numbers, you know, that that to me is where I'm excited, right? It's a sub-4 ERA. It's probably a sub-120 whip. Uh, the projections bear that out. Tons of strikeouts. You know what you're going to get. Like, Darvish to me, like, NL only leagues, I'm, I'm looking at him as probably a low twenties pitcher, like twenty to twenty two bucks, not not much more. I, I don't I don't think there's uh, such an amazingly safe floor with him that you want to go any higher than that. But low twenties, no problem at all. Twenty to twenty two would be the numbers that I'd be looking at. Jack Flaherty uh, had kind of a tale of two seasons as well, and he was coming off a really impressive. 2018 so for a little while it looked like he was one of the big disappointments of 2019 and then the script flipped and his 2019 ended up being even better than his 2018 uh, I, I see him probably as a top five pitcher in an NL only league he's going to cost probably 25 to 27 dollars in an auction so depending on how aggressive the room is you may have to pay even more than that to get him you may have to pay close to 30 the question for you you know is should you like do you think Flaherty has done enough to merit the extra couple of dollars when you're trying to lock in that ace in an NL only auction. I do. And to go back to you, Darvish and Trevor Bauer, uh, I'm really tempted to put an equal sign there. Really? Hmm. Yeah. You're going to get Bauer cheaper. Bauer, Bauer is going to be 16 to 18, I would guess in most NL auctions. Yeah. And uh, here's, here's what I've got. So I, I told people I've got the uh, driveline stuff numbers. Um, Driveline stuff number on Bauer is 110. Uh, his command number is 92. Hmm. You Darvish. The. I feel like we're talking about number, blood pressure. 110, 92. 112, and 92. Yeah, it is. That's that's where that equal sign's coming from. Like, I'll put you Darvish one or two ahead of Bauer, but wherever I have Bauer, I'm putting you Darvish. So. And I would say that I, I like a new pitch better than a slight change in command. I will say that. So if you're trying to trying to like sort of sort through what makes more sense to me, like if a guy debuted a new pitch and threw it 10% of the time, there it's been proven that just throwing a new pitch 10% of the time helps your third time through the order penalty, right? Without even knowing how good that pitch is. So if a guy debuts a new pitch and uh, it looks good, then I'm like two thumbs up. If a guy like tweaked his release point like a half inch, like what does that mean, dude? You know, <laughs> like what? Like uh, I'm like then 
couldn't he just lose that half inch tomorrow? <laughs> right. Like, well, in with Darvish in particular, the only thing that would make me just a little bit hesitant to think, okay, he's found it and he's good, is what we saw, I think it was in 2018, when he was dealing with the arm pain and he was constantly tinkering with his mechanics. And in, in bullpen sessions, he was changing arm slots all the time, changing release points and his arm would feel okay if he if he got to a certain point, but it would feel bad if he wasn't there. And it just it was a house of cards. Like that's that's how I kind of saw it from a, a health standpoint uh, with you, Darvish, uh, two years ago. So I, I think that's what's kind of holding him into that low twenties range. With Bauer, I do see a lot of similarities to Archer when it comes to uh, the statistical output over the years. Like Archer just did it where he was really good at the beginning for even a couple of seasons, and then everyone kept hoping he'd get back down to that level. But we've seen four consecutive seasons with an ERA of four or higher. It topped out at 519 last season. Uh, we saw the whip just kind of keep rising, and the strikeouts were there, the innings were there in, in 16 and 17, but he just never quite got down to what the, the FIP was pointing to. And I, I think there could be a little bit of that with Bauer as well, where the, you know, the innings volume in the Ks, offset some of that ratios damage but he's always going to leave us wanting more because of how good that 2018 season was with the era and whip yeah and and you darvish's early career like still we still remember all the the k's and the the nice eras but uh, to me both are high threes era guys with lots of strikeouts and fair amount of home run risk so they're oh they're both amazing pitchers if the ball gets dejuiced i would say both of these guys are at the forefront of of pitchers that would benefit. It's pretty interesting. How long, by the way, do you think it's going to be uh, into the season before we can comfortably say the ball has changed back or changed in some significant sort of way? Is it a few weeks? I mean, it didn't take long for for that to pop up in 2019. Like, when, when do you think we can comfortably say that things are back to normal, potentially? Yeah, I mean, Rob Arthur... Um was able to do stuff when it came to the, uh, the postseason, Right. So, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you, you know, two, three weeks, I think in the first month, we'll let's expect a Rob Arthur piece. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got this figured out where, uh, you know, there's hundreds of pitches every night. So if you've got, you know, uh, a week's worth of pitches, you've got thousands of pitches. And what he's looking at is the difference in velocity out of the hand and at the plate. Um, so that's a very directly measurable thing, you know, and what it might lead to is some buying opportunities. If some of these guys that would stand to gain from a ball change end up getting off to slow starts just kind of randomly, but the ball has changed back. It might be great opportunities to swoop in with an early trade. One thing I will point out, um, this season is going to be very interesting from a stats perspective. We are going to enter a lot of chaos um, knowing what Texas Rangers are doing is going to be almost impossible because they weren't able to have Trackman and um, and Hawkeye on at the same time in their new stadium. So Hawkeye is going to pump out some weird looking stats, I bet, uh, for Texas Rangers. And um, in terms of stadium to stadium calibration, we're going to be at back at 2015 for Statcast. We're going to be back at Ground Zero. Um, in terms of uh, uh, just knowing exactly, even if if Rob does this, you know, I think he's going to have to admit that, like, you know, 
he's also testing the, 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 the statistical system too, right? He's testing the system as much as he's testing the ball. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of doubt about numbers early next year because we're moving over to Hawkeye. And every time when Pitch FX, the first year it came out, uh, was not good at all at deciding what pitch was what pitch type. I, I like uh, I like the ominous ending. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is going to be really hard for me personally, <laughs> which I know everyone cares about. But every you know anybody who's trying to like work quickly next year, it, there's going to have to be a fair amount of of smell test, you know, and um, I don't know. If one nice thing is Andrew Perpetua right now is not employed by a team, so hopefully uh, he'll be out in the forefront of washing some of the data and telling us where he's. He used to have X stats. Maybe X stats will come back online. Um, and if X stats comes back online, uh, maybe we'll know a little bit more about what the wash data looks like, what the what the uh, problems are. Uh, maybe he'll uh, show up in some of my pieces. So um, anyway. Uh, it'll be an interesting beginning of the season for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm excited already, and we're still like more than two months away, just a little over two <laughs> months away. Uh, as always, you can reach our show via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. On Twitter, he's at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. Lots of other great pods to check out here at The Athletic. Check out Starkville with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. We got college hoops pods, including Bracket Madness as well. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.